is going to come lead us in a moment in our study. But I have another reminder, which, Reed, you can start the recording if you want to, because I want to remind anyone who happens to catch uh, the video. Hopefully, you are catching this before Sunday the 14th, and you can be reminded, and we can all be reminded, we're doing diapers and wipes uh, shower for Charlie Wittenden and Olivia Wittenden, our beloved uh, church secretary, my pastoral secretary, uh, this coming Sunday. So j everybody just remember about diapers and wipes for Charlie and Olivia and Brian for Sunday. And then Reed is gonna lead us. And this will be, Reed, this will be our final yes. study of uh, kind of a brief overview of theology. And we will be off next Wednesday and then we start the full-fledged Wednesday on the 24th, right, Wanda? It's the 24th. I think I put the 23rd in the first draft of the newsletter. All right. So, and by the way, it took us after our diapers and wipes. We lasted, I think, three or four months before we had to buy diapers. So, it is. It's a good. Uh, I, I enjoyed that. It was. It was kind of a sad day when we had to start buying diapers. So, um. So you can go ahead and open up to Exodus 34. We're gonna be there in just a second. Um, we've kind of talked about some general theology stuff, some stuff that we can get from general revelation. Uh, we've we moved on last week to talk about uh, the divine name, Yahweh, what that means, um, and related to that, what it means for God to be a father, which is also in that passage. And so today we're going to continue a little bit of that um, in Exodus 33, um, in Exodus 34. This is the, the episode where um, God walks by Moses. Moses has to see his glory. And um, God says, well, you can't see my glory, but you can see my back. And so that's, that's what happens there. But first, I, was, th I thought this was a good illustration. Um, now, again, we are we're reformed, so we don't, we don't do this kind of thing. But this is an Eastern Orthodox icon of Noah's Ark. So you can see there's lots of symbolism and stuff in here. Uh, that thing in the middle is the Garden of Eden, and you can see the Tree of Life there. And... There's, there's a rainbow and everything for Noah. But um, at the top there, there's a little kind of circle at the top. I think I have a zoomed-in picture. Here you go. Yeah. And so that is supposed to represent God. Uh, by, by the way, the, the guy that painted this, his name was Jonathan Peugeot. And he's, uh, if you've heard of, you may have heard of him. He's um, kind of friends with some of these neoconservative types that are um, like Jordan Peterson I guess he's not technically a neoconservative, but he's friends with Jordan Peterson, with Joe Rogan, with that kind of crowd. So um, he's become popular, but this is one of his, his paintings. But you can see that God, this representation of God, the outside is white, but the inside is black. And this is, this is really common in some of these icons. And what, what they're getting at, and it's, it's not, obviously you can see the sun there too, the sun is... The, the king guy. Don't dig too far into some of the symbolism. But it's interesting that there's kind of a reflection of the sun here, right? The, that it looks like the sun. And, and the point is, God is, is this glorious light. And we can see him. We can, we can get some grasp of who God is. But ultimately, we can't really know God in, at, at the core of who he is, Right? We, we know God insofar as he reveals himself to us. Uh, but we know God in kind of a similar way to the way that we know the sun. 
you know, you can't look directly at the sun. You, you, you can see the sun that's there. You know a lot about the sun. The sun gives you light to see everything else. But we can't look directly at it because, as we'll find out in Exodus 34, um, it's kind of dangerous to do that. So um, let's go ahead and look at Exodus 34. Just to give you the background, um, Moses is getting new tablets with the Ten Commandments. And um, there's just been this interaction, interaction where Moses is praying and Moses has asked, like, God, will you be with us? How, how will we know um, who you're going to send with us? How will we know that we're going to be protected? And he says, show me your ways that I may know in order to find favor in your sight and consider this nation as your people. And so he's, he's making this plea to God. And God says, I'll be with you. And then he takes another step forward. And after God says yes to that, like, I'll, my presence will be with you, he says, well, can you show me your glory? And God says, no, <laughs> I can't show you my face, which we're about to talk about God's face, his back, his hand, all this stuff. And so these are, there's different ways to interpret this. This could possibly be some sort of Christophany, some sort of pre-incarnate um, Jesus. Um, I think maybe more likely, although I'm not, like, married to this. Maybe more likely this is um, actually anthropomorphisms for something deeper that's going on, where it's not actually that Jesus is there, but God is revealing himself to Moses and using his hand as a descriptor, his back as a descriptor, his face as a descriptor of some bigger reality. And so he says, I'm going to hide you in this rock. I'm going to pass by. And so getting ready for this episode, look at verse 34, uh, chapter, chapter 34, verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose up early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, proclaimed Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance." So it's interesting, we're, we're learning a little bit about God. This is an expansion of what happens in Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, God come, Moses comes to the burning bush, and God is present there. And here, Moses has had this whole experience where he's been walking with God, he's been serving God, and God reveals something even more than what we saw in Exodus 3. And so God, like I said, he, he doesn't want to show his face, because his face is going to overwhelm Moses, his glory is going to overwhelm Moses. And so he covers Moses with his hand. This is in the end of verse 33, end of chapter 33. He covers Moses with his hand, which God's hand is either a really good thing or a bad thing. 
if God's hand is on you, that's a, either a sign of protection, which is part of the ironic blessing that you hear most Sundays, or it's a sign of judgment. And so in this case, it's a sign of protection. So God is protecting Moses from himself. And then, like the sun, like the, the sun we can't see, God lets Moses see just a little bit of himself. He doesn't show him the full force of who he is. He doesn't show him uh, his face, the image of himself, but he shows him his back. And so Moses is getting that kind of glimpse of God where he he can't see the fullness of who God is. He can't see the the center of who God is, but he gets a glimpse of the character of God. And God actually proclaims several things about himself um, that are himself. And so if we look in verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We've talked about earlier divine simplicity, the idea that God's not made of parts. We've talked about how God, his, his essence and his existence, or like he is his own existence, which you, you are not that way. And so when, when God says things about him, these things about himself, God is not just saying that he is... He has these things, right? So, one example, this is, I think uh, James Dolezal uses this example, but you can talk about how Albert is wise, right? You have this man, Albert, and he's wise. But wisdom is not something that is part of the essence of who Albert is, right? He could have a head injury, um, he could lose all his memories, and he's not wise anymore. But he's still Albert. But you can't do that with God. If you take away... Grace, if you take away patience, if you take away steadfast love and faithfulness from God, he's not God anymore. And so God is revealing more of his character, more of his name, and more of who he is at the core, at the center. And ultimately, when we get to Christ, we get the fullest picture of that in in the person of Christ who comes to us as a man. But Moses' response to this, Moses' response to seeing all these things about God you know, you would think, like, we would, we would turn and go, like, oh, that's so cool, right? But no, he quickly bows his head toward the ground. So Moses gets a glimpse of God, and as soon as he sees God, he looks away, right? Because it's so big and so powerful. And his response is awe and fear. And kind of, it's, it's not totally explicit, but some sort of repentance is going on, too, right? If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord... Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And so his immediate response is not to go near to God, it's actually to turn away from God. To bow, to get low, to hide himself, and to admit sin. And so, um, these names of God, this, this, who God has proclaimed himself to be, is, that's the kind of response that he elicits. So, names are, are interesting because we can think of names in a few different ways. Um, on one hand, names can point to something true, and in the case of, of God, um, something that's like substantially true. So, I, an example would be, I could call something a girl, right? If I have a, a little girl next to me, I could say, that is a girl, and that speaks something true about Right. No matter what else is going on, that's a girl. Now, maybe that's debatable in our culture, but <laughs> no matter what else is going on in the world, that's a girl. And so that, that signifies something 
inherent to that, to that person. But if I say that girl is a daughter or that girl is a sister, I'm signifying not only is that girl a girl, but that girl has a mother and has a sibling and has a father. And so that name, the, the, I, I'm using the word name, basically I mean anything that's designating what something is, right? So a, just a noun. Um, either designates something of a substance, something like at the essence of what something is, or it designates something that's um, in relation to another thing. So God's names, most of the time, and particularly when we get in, in Exodus 34 here, are denoting something of substance, right? So God is, when we talk about how God is gracious, how God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, uh, that's not in relation to anything else, right? God is those things no matter what, no matter whether we exist, no matter um, if there's anything to love, partially because God is Trinity, and we're about to talk about that in more detail. So when God reveals his name, name to us, he's revealing... Um, not just something we can call him, but he's revealing really his character and the depth of who he is. So, any questions on, on that? Okay. Well, now we're going to move from names, and this, this kind of flows naturally. Because as we, as we dive into some of the names of God, for example, God reveals himself to us as a father. And that means different things depending on what exactly you're talking about. Like, is, is God the father of creation? Yes. Is God the father of Jesus? Yes. Is God the father of the church? Yes. And so there's different ways we can speak of of fatherhood. And so it's important that we think about what does this name refer to specifically, right? And what do we mean when we say our father who art in heaven? Are we talking about, in that particular case, we're talking about our father, the father of the church, right? But when I say the Father versus our Father, I tend to be referring to the Father of Jesus, something about God's character. So, um, so let's talk about personhood. What is, what is a person? Any guesses? So maybe... We can, we can define it maybe psychologically. That's a, that's a common thing now, right? To define a person as somebody with, like a, with a mind that has an ego and an id if you're going that you know, kind of direction. So that's one we could define a person. We can define a person um, morally, and that gets into like abortion debates. So you would, you would see that. And I, I think this is the, maybe the best argument against the pro-life position. I don't think it's a very strong argument at the end of the day, but... Um, is the idea that fetus, fetuses, feti, are not people, they're not persons, they're not, they don't have personhood until later. Um, and that's a moral argument of what a person is, that a person has some sort of freedom of, of will. But I think we need to step beyond all that and think about a person in terms of metaphysics, which is what we've been doing the whole time, is talking about metaphysics. But it, because when we talk about a, a person... When we apply that to God, we have to be really careful about what we mean. Because the basic affirmation of the Trinity is that God is one being, one nature, one substance, 
and three persons. Now, that doesn't really make sense in our heads, right? Because I am one being and one person. So I've heard it described that I'm a unipersonal being, and God is a tripersonal being. But that doesn't really make any sense to our little minds. And again, this is us looking into the, the blackness of the, the incomprehensible God, right? But person is the historical word that's been used to describe what exactly is going on in the Godhead when we have this distinction in the middle of something that's supposed to be simple and unified. And so we have to hold that intention that God is unified, God is one. That's what the Shema says, Hero Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. And we also have to hold, in, hold that intention with the idea that God is three. God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. And the traditional way of doing that, and I think the best way of doing that, the church has always said this, is through persons. And so that, that dates back to uh, Tertullian, who's, he lived around 200, um, kind of like within 100 years of the, apostle, the apostles. And um, he used the word persona in Latin. He was writing in Latin. Another early church father, Origen, who was just a little bit later than Tertullian. Um, Origen, writing in Greek, used the word hypostasis, which you, you may have heard the term hypostatic union before, talking about Jesus. That's what that is coming from. It's, again, it, it doesn't mean quite the same thing as persona, um, but it's a similar concept. Hypostasis is something that stands under something, right? Um, so those, those are the words that have been used. This is even before church councils like the Church of, like the Council of Nicaea, Council of Constantinople, that defined these things really dogmatically for us. This is the language that has been used by the church fathers immediately following the apostles. So while you won't find these words used to describe God in the Bible, um, very quickly the church finds the need to do it to describe who God is, um, basically in response to heretics who were saying that God was other things. So fast forward about 400 years, and we really need to define what this is, because again, we're working in two different languages. We're working in Greek and Latin at this time. We're working with a church that's divided across a continent. And so Boethius, that's a, that's a fun name. You can name, you know, you give us one of your children a name, a grandchild that if you want. Um, Boethius gives us the definition that the church has used east and west all over the um, world for about 1,500 years. And both Boethius says a person is an individual substance. This might take just a second. There may be some lag here, but it'll pop up. But an individual substance of a rational nature. Now, we're going to break that down. But this, this becomes the standard definition of what a person is. An individual substance of a rational nature. And later... 800 years later, Thomas Aquinas really dives into this and breaks this down for the Western church. And so we're talking about a person. A person is three things. It's an individual, a substance, and a, and a rational nature. So we can talk about um, individuality. And we haven't really talked about what substance means, but... Um, Basically, the idea is that, that something that is a substance exists on its own. So, um, we're talking about 
like my dog, for example. A dog, that is a substance, right? It doesn't need another thing to exist, but the dog's color is an accident, and so it relies on the dog to exist. So um, we can call it self-existing, although that, that's a, a little misleading, but I think it's the best we can go for right now. Um, because obviously everything relies on God for its existence. But in and of itself, it's existing. It doesn't rely on something immediately um, for existence. And then third is rationality. So this is also very helpful for, um, again, our abortion debates, to think in, because we really need to define what a person is for for those purposes. And a person is an individual who, who exists of its own accord, and who has at least the um, potential for rationality. So um, in, the, in the example of a fetus, while that fetus does not have a fully formed adult human mind, that's a rational being by any stretch of the imagination, right? So individuality, self-existing, and rational. So we can make sense of this in terms of humans. I'm an individual because I have a body, and I am not Martin. We, have, we are partially because we're two separate bodies. We have separate heads, separate arms, um, and as two separate bodies, we're two separate individuals. So that's pretty straightforward if you, um, if you think about it. The reason I am me and not someone else is because I am me, ultimately. Second, um, I exist of my own accord. I'm, I'm not attached to an um, existence machine that's, that's powering me, although ultimately God is holding everything together and giving me existence, but um, at least in locally, in, in our own context, I'm existing. And I have a human nature. Now, this gets complicated when we start talking about what a, what a divine person is. Because if you remember, we talked about analogy, how when we say things about humans and we say things about God, we can say true things on both those levels with slightly different meanings, right? But it's, it's a difference in proportion. So when we say person speaking about God, we mean something of the same thing speaking about persons at a human level. But it's not exactly the same. It's a matter of proportion. And so if we look at our, our three, three things here, individuality, self-existing, rationality. Now, in, in a divine person, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we have to remember all the stuff that we've talked about before. We have to remember that God is unchangeable. God is eternal and infinite. God is simple. God isn't composed of parts. He doesn't have causes. He's not dependent on anything else. He's self-sufficient. And so we, we take all that into our discussion of the Trinity because we remember we're holding two things in tension. We're holding the unity of God and the diversity of God and the Trinity in tension. Both of those things are true. And so the tendency is, when we start talking about the Trinity, our tendency is to kind of drop some of that language that we've used to discuss the unity of God. But if we want to have a robust doctrine of the Trinity, we need to have both of those at the same time. So, by the way, we're going to, I'll pull this up later, but um, the, Ath- the Athanasian Creed, which I don't think that our, um, the EPC doesn't hold to that officially, although I don't think I would, anybody would have any problem with it in the EPC. But <laughs> um, it says, to, to believe in the Trinity, we need to not confound the persons or divide the substance, right? 
And so we need to have both of those together. So when we talk about, um, for example, the nature of God, the existence of God, because we've talked about how God's essence and existence, God's, God is his own existence, um, each of the three persons of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are all identical with the existence of God. So, you can't divide them up into three different substances, three different existences. They are all three together the same existence of God. So, um, all three are identical with existence. Well, if that's true, the same thing applies to um, the same thing applies to the divine nature, right? The same thing applies to uh, the rationality of God. So this is, this is really important because a lot of times, if we make a mistake here, we'll end up by having the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be three separate minds or three separate wills, right? But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one mind. They have one will. And so we have to be very careful to distinguish between what's going on externally, because we have Jesus, for example, submitting to the Father as a man. But that's not happening inside God. That's happening outside, outside of God in the world in creation, in the economy of God's salvation is a technical way we talk about it. But inside God, there's one will, and so there's no submission inside God. I'm going to pause there. Does, does that make sense? Am I, am I making, am I being clear here? So there's one will inside of God. Um, and so for submission, for authority submission, you need to have multiple wills. But that, that doesn't happen inside of God. There's one will, one mind, one intelligence, one act altogether. And so this rationality piece doesn't work either. So um, all three have one mind. So we're talking about divine persons. We're talking about human persons that have individuality. They have some self-existence and some rationality. That's also true of God, but uh, we can't use those to distinguish the persons in the Trinity. We can't use those to distinguish Father from Son from Holy Spirit. And so the way we do it is by... Um, it's individuality. So this is where the distinction is. So you, you'll remember the girl, right, who's also a daughter, who's also a sister. So that's where we can make a distinction in God. Because a divine person, and this the, the standard way of talking about this is to call, talk about a subsisting relation, which means that it's a relationship that exists in God. So if you talk about human relationships, human fatherhood and human sonship are not tied to our nature, not tied to who we are, but in God they are. And so but this is also very important for, for thinking about 
family stuff, gender stuff as well. The tendency, I think, for, for a lot of people is to, to think of God as a person and then blow him up real big and say, you know, that's what God is like. But in reality, we get everything from God. So it, it's like the builder and the house the, and the relationship between those things versus, you know, the father and the son between God and creation. So when, when we talk about fatherhood, the origin of fatherhood is in God. And the realist fatherhood, to, to use bad grammar, is in God. And so our notions of fatherhood flow from that, not the other way around. And so this is, this is another danger. We can think of God as so big, so great, that we can't use analogy. Um, that when we say fatherhood, it basically means nothing for, for God. But the reverse is actually true. That, that when we talk about fatherhood, it, it comes from God and comes down. When we talk about sonship, it starts in God and comes down, right? And so, um, by the way, we, again, to reiterate, God is not male. God is not female. Um, there are certainly things that are described of God that even sound female. Um, but this is the way that God has revealed himself to us. And particularly in, in his creation, he, he, there's something that's natural called fatherhood. Right, And that's the thing that he wants us to refer to him as, to think about him as, as a father. And so let's, let's talk about those distinctions. Um, talk about what, what exactly those relations are. So we'll, we'll start with the father. And the way that we distinguish between father and son and Holy Spirit is by these relations. So the, the thing that distinguishes the father from the son is the father's paternity, his fatherhood, right? He's also, the father is also unbegotten. The, the fancy word is inassibility, but he's unbegotten, which distinguishes him from both the son and the spirit. And so he's the source in the Trinity. Now this is, I'm not saying he's the cause of the, the son or the cause of the spirit, but he's the source of divinity in the Trinity, this is where the Trinity comes from, from the Father. He also um, spirates, he, he breathes out the Spirit, and that distinguishes him from the Spirit. But God's fatherhood is, is not him changing or becoming, he never becomes a father, to use that distinction. God always is a father by nature. And so his, his generation of the son, his begetting of the son, is not something that, it's, that is flowing from his will, because the father and the son and the spirit all have one will, right? It's by his nature. Is everybody following me here? So if I decide to have a child, I decide to have a child, right? And that child is separate from me. But the father never decided to beget the son. He never decided to generate the son. Um, the son is also the son by the nature of God. So when we talk about God as father, son, and spirit, that, that is what God is. It's not something that has, that has come about in God. It is who he is. 
So that's, that's what distinguishes the Father from the Son and from the Spirit, his paternity and his, negatively, his unbegottenness and his aspiration. He's the source of all things. He's the font where things come from, where, where the Son and the Spirit come from. But all of that happens simultaneously and, and eternally. So it's not, it's not that this, is, this happened at some point in time that God was, you know, the, God the Father was by himself and at some point in time the Son and the Spirit came about. It's, it's all in the nature of God. Does that make sense? So, second, the Son. The unique thing about the Son is that he is begotten. So the Father has paternity. That's the thing that makes him the Father. The thing that makes the Son the Son is his begottenness. Now, this is not like human begottenness. You, you see that word in the Bible to talk about you know, having children. Um, that's not a human thing. I'm trying to pull up a, a verse here. Um, this is something that happens it's, it's, again we're talking about analogy it's totally different but I'm trying to pull up this verse for you it's, it's freezing up on me I may have to turn there well go ahead and flip to John 16 um, we'll be in John several times so And John is very much a book that's devoted to um, talking about the son, the son's sonship, and who he is in, in God. But John sixteen, verse fifteen. Start. Let's start in verse twelve. I still have many things to say. This is Jesus speaking. I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in a minute, but the Holy Spirit is, is taking what is the Son's and giving it to the church. But what the Son's is comes from the Father. And so the Son is God because the Father is God. Again, this is all part of God's nature. That's not something that, that ever happened. God is, just is. So this is the way that God is. But God's sonship, the, the sonship of, of Jesus means that he receives all of the Father's divinity and power. He receives God's nature and God's um, ability, right? So, so everything the, the Father can do, the Son can do, which is why Jesus can perform miracles. It's not because Jesus is a, a good prophet, which you know, certainly prophets perform miracles, but Jesus' miracles are unique from, from the prophet's miracles because Jesus has the authority of God. And Jesus actually even forgives sins, which is not something that the prophets before him had authority to do, right? And so the authority of the Father is displayed in the Son. But we can also speak about um, Jesus in a couple other ways from the New Testament. Flip to John 1. You'll be familiar with this. The Son is also called the Word of God. So John 1, 1. In the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was, light of, was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. And so, jump down to verse 14, and this is the, where it really reveals to us what this word is. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, I've preached on this before, but John is using this, this, Greek, language, this Greek language, this Stoic language about the logos, which is this big ordering principle of the universe. And then he says, that thing, the ordering principle of the universe, the thing that holds the universe together, the logos became flesh, became a man, and he's the son of God. So, we talk about the word of God. Um, certainly that Greek thought is, is in the background, this, this organizing principle, but um, there's some things that are, that are kind of obvious from that language, too. That language, there's also a connection in the Old Testament all over the place for this. Um, for example, if, if you ever see the angel of the Lord, um, you could also translate that the messenger of the Lord. An angel is just a messenger, and so this is kind of the word of God coming to his people. But the word, a word in our heads comes forth from us, right? So if you have a thought, in some sense, that's you. Which, you know, we're talking in terms of analogy, so this doesn't work perfectly between, between us and God. But to say that the Jesus, is, Jesus is the word of God, it's something that comes from God and fully expresses God. So if I speak a sentence, if I speak a word, it's expressing something that is in me. And in the same way, when God speaks the word who is Christ, he's expressing himself. And so this is where we get another um, word. So Jesus is the word, but Jesus is also the image of God. And so you can keep your finger in John. We're going to go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 describes this is describing Jesus. Jesus, he is the image the icon is the Greek word of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so again, you're getting some of the self-sufficiency language again, that all things are through him, by him, for him. Um, but it talks about Jesus as the image of God. So who else is made in the image of God? Humans, Right? And so the, the, the question that we can kind of ask is, what does it mean that Jesus is made in the image of God, or that Jesus is the image of God? So we are made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Certainly, Jesus took on the image of God in some sense as a man, because humanity has the image of God. But this, is, this goes back further than that. 
Jesus is not just made in the image of God. He is the image of God. He's the imprint of God. It's the, it's the same... Um, we can speak of him as like the exemplar of creation, right? And I won't get into this. There's some platonic thought that would be interesting here. But uh, like the, the difference between like a model in God's mind and what comes out in the creation. And so Jesus, in some ways, is the model of creation, and the model particularly of human creation. And so when it talks about humans being made in the image of God, what Colossians is telling us, what Paul is telling us here, is that for, for humans to be made in the image of God is for humans to be made in the image of Christ, to be made like Christ. Further than that, too, what, what is salvation? Salvation, in part, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so at the fall, we don't lose the image of God, but we do lose something, right? We, we're, the image of God is distorted in us. And salvation is restoring what was broken. Salvation restores us to the image that we were created to be. And it conforms us to the image who is Christ. Does that make sense? So that, that should be... I think that's a big deal. Because when we talk about the image of God, a lot of times we, we kind of gloss over that. And um, it's a nice thing to say, like, all people are created in the image of God or, or whatever. But to be created in the image of God is not just a platitude. It's, it's to be like Christ, which means, and, you know, we don't, we don't want to say that all people are children of God, but there's a sense in which we can say that all people are children of God. They reflect the sun in some way. And so, you know, we talk about how it's offense, an offense, for example, to murder because that's a destruction of the image of God. That's, you see that kind of thing in Genesis um, 9, for example. And so if it's, if, for example, if it's murder, if it's a sin to destroy the image of God in humans, think about what the crucifixion was. The crucifixion was the destruction, or the attempted destruction, of the very image of God. And it's not just a reflection in us. It's not just the, the you know, the clay that, we were, the, that the um, mold was applied to. It was the destruction of the mold itself. And so that, that's, a, that's a radical thing. That's a, a radically sinful thing to do is to destroy the image of God. But then the image of God prevails over that. And he imprints himself on creation again. He imprints himself on people again to save them through that destruction. And that's a, that's a huge deal. So when you think about the image of God, you don't just think about um, kind of in vague terms. The image of God is Jesus. To be made in the image of God is to be made in the image of Jesus. So that's the Son. Any questions about the Father and the Son? So let's talk about the Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit's the, the hardest one, I think, for us to wrap our heads around. Because when I, when I say Father, you know what I mean by that. And you can identify what it means for a Father to be a person. When I say Son, the image that is conjured in your head is of a person. When I say Spirit... It doesn't quite work that way, right? You, you can't envision a, you know, a person as a spirit. But we'll talk about this in, in detail in just a second. But the spirit really is God, and the spirit really is a person. And to neglect that is a very serious, a very serious thing. 
So if your finger's still in John, I, I think I'll have it up there. Yeah. If, if your finger's still in John, you can flip to John 15. But it's, it's right here. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, this is Jesus speaking, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the thing, the, the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit is this is procession, sending. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, which is supposedly controversial between the East and the West. Um, the, if, you think, if you read about the great schism of the church between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, generally the, the thing that's referred to as this, the, the adding of the, um, the filioque, the and the Son in the Nicene Creed, where we say that God is, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. In reality, theologically, there's not that big of a difference between the East and the West. The East would still affirm that. They just don't want to, um, they would basically recognize that that's perfectly fine language. Um, the issue was more about papal authority and the fact that the Bishop of Rome was trying to take control of the entire church, which he ended up doing in the West at least. But um, that's just an aside. But procession is, is what identifies the Spirit. Um, another way to say it is spiration, which we already talked about, where the Spirit is breathed out. Um, in the same way that, um, and we're going back to creation again, where you know Jesus, was, Jesus is the image of God, made in the image of God. What else does God do? He breathes life into Adam, right? So, again, all three persons of the Trinity are active and working in creation. But in the same way that the word that comes forth is an expression of the person who speaks the word, the breath that comes from them is an expression of them as well. And again, that doesn't work perfectly with humans. We're talking in terms of analogy because um, if I breathe, my breath is not literally me, but in terms of God, God's breath really is God. Um, but that's what distinguishes the, fa- the Father and the Son from the Spirit is procession sending. And by the way, if, if you're not uh, sold on this and the Son thing, I will point out that verse 26 says, I know it says he proceeds from the Father, but it also says the Son will send uh, the Spirit. Um, so let's, let's turn to Luke 1. If your finger is still in John, that should be pretty easy. And so let's, let's look at some of the things that the Spirit does. Luke 1 um, is the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He's talking about Zechariah, John the Baptist, all that, that's prophesied. Um, and we also see uh, Mary being um, told she's going to be pregnant, she's going to have a child. And so a couple different things happen. Uh, Luke has notoriously long chapters. If you ever have a reading plan that has you read four chapters a day, Luke is hard to get through. Um, but when, let, let's go to verse 26. This is when Gabriel comes to Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from, from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So notice what the Holy Spirit does for Mary. The Holy Spirit does an act of creation here. There, you don't have all the, all the parts together to create a human within Mary. And the Holy Spirit, in some ways, is creating ex nihilo, out of nothing. There's something there, but the Holy Spirit has to add something that was not there to make, it, to make Jesus be born, to make Jesus be formed. And so that's a very... Um, that's very interesting because who creates out of nothing? God, right? So the Spirit here is God. The Spirit also, you see all through um, this, the, the Spirit is speaking th- through prophets. So the Spirit speaks the Word of God and speaks as God prophetically um, through these people. So that's, again, the Spirit is God, although we, we tend to think of the Spirit as, as again, something that's not quite God. We, we kind of tend to lower the Holy Spirit down to a level that we can wrap our heads around, but that's not quite, that's not what the, the scriptures tell us is the case. Well, just as Jesus has these two names, word and image, we also see two names um, for the Holy Spirit. So the love of God, for example, Augustine really dives into this. If you ever you know, want to read about this, Augustine is surprisingly easy to read. Um, on this, but First John four eight, you're familiar with this passage. Says that God is love. Now we've talked about how God is all His attributes. So when we say that God is um, steadfast love, He's abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. All those things. That's part of the nature of God. But God, but love is not just an act. Love is not just an attribute. Love is a relationship, right? And so again, a person. And the Trinity is a relation. And a lo- love also is a relation. And so we can speak about the Holy Spirit as the love between the Father and the Son. And that's not to um, remove the personhood from the Spirit. That's to speak of the, the Spirit as a relationship, as a relation within God. The Spirit is also the gift of God. He pours out His Spirit on us. He pours out His power on us. And the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity that unites us with the Trinity, that connects us to God, that brings us up into relationship with Jesus, relationship with the Father. The Holy Spirit is the one who revives us, who gives us faith, and who makes us new. And so the Holy Spirit is the love of God and the gift of God. So why is this all important? We're going to end here. This is important because faith our Christian faith must be faith in the Trinity. 
other people use the name of God, right? The Jehovah's Witness, they have it in their, in their title, right? They use the name of God. But, they, but we have to believe not just in one God, but we have to believe in a God who is one in three. This is mentioned the Athanasian Creed earlier. Uh, the Athanasian Creed uh, was probably not written by Athanasius, but it's, it was widely used in, um, the, in the West. But Sorry, my slides are messed up again, but here's how it goes. And catch how serious this is. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, little c Catholic, which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, Without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. So this is the difference between heaven and hell, between eternal life and eternal death and damnation. So what is this faith? It says, and the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. And so this is important first, because if we want to have salvation, if we want to have faith, if we, if, if, if we want the things that God offers us, we have to believe in God as he reveals himself to us. We have to believe in God um, for who he is. Now, that's not to say that you know, ignorance is something that will you know, have us perish everlastingly. We, we learn more, we grow, um, and our misunderstandings are forgiven. Those, you know. But... To take all this, if we know all this, and we say, no, I'm going to reject that, that's, that's a big deal, right? That's the difference between salvation and damnation. That's the difference between faith and heresy, is to, is to reject the things that God has revealed to us. So we should take this very, very seriously. And, and part of some of what's going on, gone on in the 20th and 21st century with the doctrine of God is, a, is very, very, very dangerous. Um, because there's a lot of, even evangelicals, that are moving in a direction that are beginning to reject some of these core things about God that the church has held for, forever. And so be very careful when you hear, for example, um, that we're going to get a distinctively reformed doctrine of God, although maybe you could do that, but the doctrine of God is, is not something that is, you know, this is, this is one of the few things where we all agree, right, where we all agree on who God is. And so um, we ought to take this very seriously and be very, very, very careful about how we talk about God. But second, and think about Exodus 34, knowledge of God and understanding of God, seeing more of who God is, drives us to worship him. It drives us to, to be in awe of who he is, and it drives us to marvel at his glory and repent and confess our sins. And so to know that how great God is, know how big God is, know how powerful God is, it teaches us who we are as well. To know what the personhood of God is, to know what God is as a father, to know what God is as a son, as, as love, as the spirit, as the gift of God, teaches us something about ourselves. God's fatherhood teaches us something about fatherhood on earth. God's sonship teaches us about sonship on earth. God's love teaches us something about love on earth. And it drives us into deeper holiness, deeper repentance, deeper sanctification, and ultimately deeper love and knowledge of God. And so... We are currently two minutes late. So are there any questions, comments, final thoughts about this? So I know that the, the Trinity, and part of the reason I showed you that picture earlier is because we're talking about the Trinity. 
the whole idea of the Trinity is that we can't wrap our heads around it, so it's, it's quite big and, and difficult to understand, but um, it's a mystery, and that's, that's where we end up with that, so. And, you know, we talked about this earlier, but we can, get, we can get a lot of information about God through just, like, thinking about the world and, and looking at things, but um, we really need God to reveal himself to us. <laughs> and he does that through, you know, the word of God as we have it now, but also through his son, who is the word of God. Um, and if, if we really want to be close to this God who we can theorize about, right, um, we need to know him as, as personal, as father and his son and come close to him that way um, not just as again it's important to think about God in these big terms in, in terms of his unchangeability and his uh, simplicity and all these things but um, when we come into a relationship with God we're entering these the realm of, of these persons right and we're being able to interact in this glorious divine relationship of father son and spirit and that's that's a lot of what salvation is right the, the church is brought up and, and married to Jesus and connected to the Trinity and it becomes part of their fellowship, um, at least in some sense. And, and so, yeah, I think that's an awesome thing. I, it's, it's just a, a great thing that we, that we don't often think about, but that we, we are interacting with the, the love of God. The church becomes part of the relationship that God has with his son through adoption and through the marriage of his son to the church, and so um, we shouldn't take that for, for granted. Yeah, just picking up on what Bree's saying, and just kind of to emphasize this, God is in, only through God bringing us into relationship with the fullness of who he is in the Trinity mm-hmm. can we know God and be saved, actually, because what the scripture is telling us is Jesus says, you know, you can't know me 
Yeah. Because if you didn't know that, you would know I am. The Spirit has to reveal that. Yeah, which is part of Spirit's work. Which I didn't get into that. I, you know, we could, we could talk all the day about um, the difference between how, how each of the persons of the Trinity is particularly working, although, you know, they all work together. But um, that, another one place I would recommend you look at in the, in the Bible um, is the, the very beginning of First Peter in the introduction. I can't remember exactly what verse it is, but um, it talks about the work of each of them. And, and anytime you see in, in the New Testament, anytime you see a Trinitarian explanation, it's always connected with the work of each of those persons. And so um, First Peter is, is my favorite one of those. And all, all, a lot of those um, kind of greeting introduction things in the, in the New Testament have some of that. Um, they, they tend to appear in the, in the places where we, we kind of skim over most of the time, but there's, there's rich theology there. So, anyway, any other thoughts? So, very good. Yeah. Well, let's. Uh, well, let's pray. We'll, we'll go. Father, thank you um, for your word and for revealing yourself to us, for showing us who you are, and for, for bringing us into communion with you. Um, so that we can um, we can be a part of your your glorious love and your glorious um, community. Father, would you sanctify us? Would you make us new? And as we as we draw near to you, would you draw near to us? And would you uh, drive us to repentance, drive us to deeper faith, and drive us to sanctification as we seek your face, and as we seek um, to know the things of you that you only you can reveal to us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Reed goes up there, we want to give thanks to everybody who watched online. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you in a couple weeks here in person or online. Well, actually in person for Wednesday night, uh, August the 24th. In the, in the fellowship hall. Thank you.